0: Welcome to Multifamily Live. I'm Kaylee Aroussi. And I'm Jason Aroussi. Our mission is to help you unlock your full potential as a multifamily real estate investor. So you
1: can do more deals, bigger deals, with less stress, keep more profit, and free up your time.
0: Multifamily doesn't have to be a mystery. It's time to go live.
1: Hi everyone, it is Peely today and welcome to the show. I have an amazing guest with me. She has invested as a limited partner, key principal or general partner in over 3000 doors. Yes, you didn't hear me incorrectly, over 3000 doors totaling over 200 million assets throughout the United States. Please give a warm welcome to my friend,
2: Sanja Sasadri. Sanja, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peely. It's such an honor to be back on your show. And you are one of the most amazing people I've had the pleasure to get to know by getting into this whole world of multifamily. So thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for coming back, I should say, because we've actually had you on the show before in our Mothers of Multifamily. But today, we're going to take a whole different turn because we're going to have a teaching moment. We are going to teach together how... Limited partners or passive investors can vet general partners, operators when they're getting into uh, passive investments. So before we jump into that, can you give the audience, can you give my listeners, a little bit more back information about you?
2: So like most Indian geeks, um, I have a degree in engineering. Uh, got my college degree in engineering, got my corporate job and uh, worked there for a while, realized all the sales and marketing types, made all the decisions and decided to get an MBA to educate myself to more understand how they make their decisions and write financials and then moved into the marketing side myself, became one of them, Uh, ran uh, large projects to the tune of $80 million for a Fortune 500 company and realized after I had children that time with my children was more important. Uh, so I completely went into the stock market because I already had the financial background for it. And the corporate rat race had me traveling all over the world, which was difficult to go to Taiwan in the drop of a hat. So spending time with my kids became a greater priority. But then after being successful in the stock market, I realized I was paying a lot in taxes. And I always wanted to have something to do with real estate. It's just that I was afraid of the three T's, you know, tenants, toilets, trash and termites, a fourth T, and uh, didn't want to deal with that myself. So when I heard about multifamily, where I could be an asset manager rather than a day to day, you know, property manager, it was appealing. And I got into it uh, in 2018. And it's been a fantastic ride since then.
1: And what an amazing ride it's been. I am so privileged to know you. Uh, You're one of those people that I go to and we can have amazing conversations on any subject in multifamily, any subject of motherhood. So thank you so much for being my friend. So let's dive in. So the question of the day is, as a limited partner or passive investor, how do I, a new investor or just... Somebody who is trying to get into multifamily by the passive investing route, how do I vet an operator, a a sponsor, or a
2: general partner? I would say that you have to do your homework just like you do when you're thinking about buying a car because it's a pretty big purchase. So in typical multifamily investments, we invest to the tune of 50K and above. And so that's a very, very large investment. So take the time to properly vet the sponsor. How well do you know them? How is their track record in the past? How have their deals performed? Do they have experience in that particular type of asset, like a deep value-add asset where there's a lot of heavy lifting involved versus a more light value-add where they just do some very simple things and uh, the deal is ready to go and cash flowing right from day one. Do they have experience in that sub market Um, and is the property management company they plan to hire uh, does that company have experience in that market because doing really well in a major city like Dallas Fort Worth which is where I am from and that's where a lot of deals happen is very different from going into a small secondary or tertiary market or a completely different market like Phoenix or Atlanta for example so I really think that the local experience matters, their track record matters. But how do you find out about their track record? Will they really tell you the full truth or will they give you references of passive investors in the deals that haven't done so well, right? Because they usually give you a reference to a friend who is gonna sing their praises. So how do you really dig in and find out more? And that's where the value of the network comes into play. So if you plan to be a passive investor for a while, I would say that you have to get connected with the peelies of the world, (laughs) right? And uh, get to know them well and get to know what kind of operators they work with and who have a good reputation in the industry and who are comfortable listing all their deals, not just the ones that have gone well. Because once you've, you know, statistically speaking, once someone has done more than a dozen deals or so, there's bound to be that occasional deal that doesn't quite meet its metrics. And you wanna know how they were able to work that, what they're willing to do to turn that around, et cetera. So um, those are some of the high level points I would say in getting to know them really well and do the kind of research you would like when you're going to buy a car or an appliance, right? From consumer reports to reliability data, et
1: cetera. Same no, that completely due diligence. Makes, that makes so much sense. I mean, you want to do the due diligence on actually, I, I feel like you also have you almost have to do more so than on the deal. Mm-hmm. Because the sponsor of the deal is basically the meat and potatoes of the deal. Mm-hmm. Yes, the deal can be fantastic. And you and I both know this. Mm-hmm. A great deal can go sour so fast with the with a bad operator, with a bad sponsor. So how do you how do you do that due diligence? You might find somebody or somebody might contact you or you might see, say you're doing a 506, that you find a 506C, which is basically an offering that can be put out to the public and you see this operator and he looks, he or she looks like he has, they have a good track record and they're all over the internet, but how can you actually find out if this is a good operator?
2: I think you need to form your own checklist. Like I have developed my own checklist from my 17 passive deals and go through that and see who is patient enough to properly, correctly answer those questions. And then you ask around your other people in the industry and verify that this is actually true. Um, It's pretty easy to look up the county records, for example, to verify, okay, this is the person who actually owns this property. Or, oh, this person happened to raise money for this property XYZ but their name is not even there. None of their LLC holdings, et cetera, have their name listed because they merely raised capital for the deal. They're not part of the managing member of the LLC that's buying the deal. So that's a clue that tells me right away, okay, this person is gonna raise capital, wait for the deal to close, take their piece of the acquisition fee and they're gonna fly away, so to speak, rather than sticking around from the time the deal closes, till the property sells and makes money for me, the passive investor. In other words, are they with me for the full cycle of the deal or are they gone within the first 60 days after raising capital? And that tells me a lot, that helps me a lot.
1: Yes, and I was gonna say, there's nothing wrong with those general partners that are more on the raising capital side. I mean, you and I both know that you can't just raise money for a deal, you have to be in the deal somehow. Mm But make sure when you're vetting those people that aren't the actual operator, aren't, aren't really part of the asset management, make sure that they have more into the deal. And, but the thing is, how can you find that out? How can you know that someone that is on the GP side of the deal and is not the sponsor of the deal, how can you know that that person is going to be with you throughout the deal?
2: I usually also ask them who is the actual asset manager and who can I ask for questions once the deal closes so that I establish a connection as a passive investor with the other sponsors in the deal as well, instead of having only this one person as my face into the deal who might not be as involved a few months later. The second question I like to ask is, are all the members of the sponsorship teams, the GP side, um, investing in the deal themselves? Do they have any skin in the game after the deal closes and after they take their acquisition fees? So when you have a $50 million deal with a 3% acquisition fee, that's $1.5 million. So even if that's across 10 different deal sponsors, and let's say it's split equally, which usually it isn't, at 150 k per person, and then they say, oh, I invested 100 k into the deal, really there is not much money in the deal for them. They actually made a profit of 50 k and now... If the deal financially goes, you know, south, doesn't do well, do they stand to lose anything financially? Yes, there is the reputation. No one wants to be associated with a deal that doesn't do well. But in the end, do they stand to financially lose something just like me, the passive investor in the deal?
1: And that so, makes- I like to know that that makes all the difference. And if that, and the thing is I've heard this too. So my husband, I, Jason, I invest in all of our deals. Um, But I've also heard from some people that the the offering is so great that they want more people to be able to invest or they oversubscribe the deal. So Mm -hmm. they take themselves out. So if that's the case, then that's fine. But give me a reason and it has to be a good one, why you are not invested in your own deal. So great information. Um, so let's dig even deeper. So we're talking we're talking about having skin in the game. We're talking about really doing your due diligence on the people that you, you go into these lo- and it's long-term partnerships. What are we missing here? You mentioned a checklist. Is there, is there any way you could at least verbally share that checklist with our listeners?
2: Oh, yeah. So a big one that uh, I already mentioned is a track record of the sponsor knowledge of the market experience in that market and the property management experience in that market. But let's talk about the team itself. Has the sponsorship team worked together before? Are there any clashes? Are their roles very clearly delineated? Because you might have two strong operators who are fantastic individually, but when they come together, they may not agree on anything. So you kind of want to make sure that the management team has like a tiebreaker vote so that they can move on with decisions, right? Because if it's an even split 50-50, that's going to be very hard to make progress on your deals. So uh, that's very important. Um, you want to make sure they all the team members have complementary skills. Because if they're all alike, and like, let's say it's a bunch of engineers getting together, that's great. As long as you have the accounting and finance side covered by someone as well, and then you have the asset management piece and actual experience covered by someone else. So you want to make sure the team as a whole, you know, checks all the boxes, so that they together can cover all the bases for your deal. Um, insurance, uh, reading contracts, legal side, et cetera, right? You want someone who has that experience, even if they're in the engineering world, like I used to work on contracts and negotiations quite a bit in my job. So I can sort of cover uh, some of that, but it's nice to have uh, people with different backgrounds to help with a team. Um, Another thing I look for in these deals itself is, um, yes, we talked about skin in the game that the sponsors invest in the deal. Um, There is also the question of, Um, how much construction background do they have to successfully execute the capital uh, projects for the deal that will result in the rent bumps that you want? So a pure construction background by itself is not enough because you got to piece that with a financial side to make sure it's an asset management role, not just a construction management role. You also want to be reading your PPM that your private placement memorandum very carefully to see how much the sponsorship team gets rewarded for these various tasks. Like they might take a 10% fee just for construction management. It's like, okay, well, why do you need that? I mean, isn't your lead contractor gonna get paid for that anyway? And in some cases like our property management company does that pretty well. They have their own construction in there and so they can take care of it. So why should the sponsors get an additional reward? Because they're getting a distribution anyway. So uh, there's a lot of different little things to look for that is going to make sure that the fee structure is not so much in favor of the sponsors that the passive investor loses out, so to speak, that a lot of money goes the sponsor's way. So the sponsor makes money regardless of whether or not the deal actually does well financially. So
1: back to the PPM, because that mm-hmm. if, if you read a PPM and it doesn't scare the bejesus mm-hmm. out of you, it's, it's not written correctly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I'm say I'm a new investor and I'm just looking at a PPM for the first time how can I best read it
2: I would definitely look for a mentor or someone who's looked at it before and I would compare two or three different PPMs to me that's one of the easiest ways is okay hey Billy you're my friend I'm going to invest in my first deal can you share an example with you know without revealing all the financial details of your specific deals, can you share me with me an example of a generic PPM that I can use to compare with a PPM of this offering that I'm considering, just to see if there's any unusual clause in there that I need to look out for. That may be the time when it might be worth paying your uh, lawyer a few hundred dollars for just an hour to review a PPM, an hour's consult, a 30 minute consult of someone who's used to seeing these types of documents is really worth it before you sink 50K or more into a deal?
1: Yes, and that was the perfect answer because, Mm -hmm. you know, we all want to save money. We all want to do the right thing. We all want to do our due diligence correctly. And sometimes we, just the fact of spending that maybe extra 100 300, even $500 on an hour mm-hmm. of a very good attorney's time is mm-hmm. worth it because that 500 might save you that $50,000 that you're putting into a bad deal. So speaking of bad deals, I'm a new investor. Or I'm just an investor and mm-hmm. a deal I've been noticing is starting to go south. Mm-hmm. If a deal starts to go bad, Mm -hmm. What can I, what should I expect, and even not even like necessarily a bad deal, but the deal closes, what should I expect as a limited partner, as a passive investor from the general partner, from the, the sponsor that
2: I invested with? This is a great question to ask even before you invest in a deal is the type of reporting you're going to receive on your deals. So, for example, in our deals, we do once a month, at least a monthly report, but then we give updates as needed. So, for example, during COVID times, we give at least an every other week biweekly report from like that March through May timeframe to say, hey, our collections haven't really dipped like we panicked about. So we're actually uh, holding steady. So we are going to give you a distribution. We just held it for the May distribution, but then we added that on and we gave it to them in August later when uh, we felt like the pandemic hadn't really affected our collection. So it's gonna be on an as needed basis, but at least once a month, you should get some form of communication that includes a high level summary as well as financials. And rather than panicking over one month, I would look for a trend of about three months. The financial reporting varies depending on the companies, the property management, et cetera, the type of accounting they do. So I would look at a three month trend and say, are we heading the right direction? Or is this delinquency, for example, during COVID times a really huge problem. So maybe we should stop spending money unnecessarily on other things. Like let's say exterior bricks, right? It would be lovely to put a nice new coat of paint and make this apartment look fantastic from the exterior. But exterior brick paint is a very expensive project to do. And it's not going to immediately translate to an increase in rent. So if you're not planning to sell the property in the next six months because you just recently acquired it, you can wait a little bit longer to do it and make sure your financials are stable on that property so that your collections, delinquencies, everything you have a plan to address that. And that way, if you needed a little extra capital to pay for your debt service, you have it. So um, monthly reporting is crucial, and more often they should be available to answer your questions, and it should have enough depth in there to where you really get a true picture of what's happening at your property. And when you go three months in a row and look at these reports, you'll see that they're not spinning the same story, but there's a sequential progress on the various projects as well as the financials for you to really understand the trend and analyze it. Yes,
1: these communications should be, I mean, you should be able to, like you said, that was such great information, by the way, you should be able to see the sequential growth or, you know not growth, but it should be a truthful picture of what is happening on that property, whether it's good or bad. And I think bringing up COVID is a good example because Jason and I also had to hold back distributions for one quarter, but then we were able to give the good news the the next quarter that it wasn't as bad as we thought. Collections stayed above ninety five percent, and mm-hmm. here are the distributions for that quarter and this quarter. So we were able to give good news in that fact. So when the bad news starts rolling in, for a deal that might be going a little south, what can you? What should you expect from your from your general partnership? Should you expect the same treatment as? a good deal? Should you expect that communication to roll through? Um, How would you handle that as a limited partner if you see signs that a deal might be
2: going south? I would want to see direct and specific communication on what the general partnership team is doing to address it. Are they trying to avoid the issue and hoping I don't notice it? Versus actually, you know, taking the bull by the horns and saying, yes, we are seeing a drop in our um, occupancy because we've raised the rents and a lot of renewals came up and tenants chose not to leave, uh, not to renew at that higher rate or delinquency has increased and here are the steps we're taking to address it. So I wanna see that in a report. And when I don't see it, then I'm immediately asking questions okay, what are you doing to address this plan? Because here I get another email from you that you're raising capital for three more deals, but why don't you take care of this existing deal first in your existing database of investors so that they come back and invest with you because they know you'll address problems head on instead of trying to avoid them or hope we don't notice them. So that's very important to me, whatever the problem is, right? Financially, leasing manager, the staff is a mess. Delinquency is uh, up, or occupancies down. Uh, something is going on in that market. You got to go address it.
1: Amazing, amazing information. So to wrap this, uh, I should call this uh, uh, sessions with with uh, Sandy. this is going to be, this is going to be a new part of our podcast. No, but you've given us so much information. Thank you so much for this moment of teaching, because this is huge for any passive investor that Mm -hmm. is looking to get into large multifamily. You need to know how to not only vet the deal correctly, and we all talk about underwriting and how important that is, but how do you underwrite the human's the physical mm-hmm. people in the deal. And Sanja, you've given us so much amazing information. So if you could wrap up that question sort of in a bow for the listeners, how, what are the first steps that they should take to basically underwrite um, the
2: sponsor instead of just the deal? Track record, experience, references for every deal, An example of a bad deal and bad times, what is their worst mistake? Like they ask you in an interview and how did you overcome that? And what is your contingency plan if things don't go as uh, initially projected? Also, if a sponsor gets hit by a bus, which could happen, who is my other people to contact? So get to know all of the sponsors in a deal that you're investing it in instead of just that one point of contact.
1: Sandra, thank you so very, very much. How can people get a hold of you if they want more information?
2: My website is the best way. It's multifamily4u.com, where the four is number four, and it's you.com. And they can put their contact information and a message to reach me or ask for my checklist, et cetera.
1: Fantastic. Everyone, please tap into Sandra, And thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Have an amazing day. Bye Thank
0: now. you so much, Philly. Want to learn exactly how we're finding high-profit, cash-flow-ready multifamily properties off-market? Want to find out how to run lightning-fast syndications to raise all the capital you need for your next multi-million dollar deal in just a few days?
1: We're breaking down our entire process step-by-step step at a three-day event happening June 10th through the 12th called, you guessed it, multi-family live
0: we've done events before but nothing this massive or this valuable and for the first time ever we're going to open the doors and walk you guys through literally every step of what we're doing on our multifamily deals
1: this is a virtual event so you don't have to travel or even leave your couch but spots are limited sign up at multifamilyliveevent.com and we'll see you there